everybody to another episode of Rocker Mike and Rob Presents. And this episode is sponsored by Park Dental Care, 12419 101st Avenue in Richmond Hill, Queens. Their number is 718-847-3800. And their website is 718dentist.com. And they take all insurances and they don't hurt. Check them out. Okay, uh, we got a very special guest today, and I'm really excited to have her on. Her name is Betty Kronstad, and she wrote a book uh, about six years ago, came out in 2016, called Perfect Day, An Intimate Portrait of Life with Lou Reed. Betty, you were Lou Reed's first wife, and I'm really happy to have you here. We've been trying to get this interview for a while going. I'm glad you're here. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Sure, sure. Um, also, I got to mention, uh, this book is available on Jawbone Press, and you can get it basically uh, wherever books are sold. Amazon has it right. and some yep. other places. And you're also, you've, you've completed a screenplay for this book, right? Yes, I have. <laughs> wow, wow. Sounded like uh, a lot of work. Well, it was, it was the first screenplay I wrote, so... I had a lot of learning to, to do, but yeah. Wow, wow. Um, okay, now what, what compelled you to write this book? Well, um, after Lou died, that would be October 27 and 2013. Right. There were authors that were writing books about Lou, and they started calling me up and setting up appointments to come and speak to me because right. of my relationship with Lou. And... I gave about three three of these interviews, and then it suddenly occurred to me, wait a minute, you can write, you actually <laughs> teach writing, um, and this is a story that no one has ever heard, why don't you write the book? Because frankly, anything I'd ever read about myself, I hadn't read one thing that was accurate. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could totally agree with that. I've, I'm a, everybody knows I'm a big Lou Reed fan, I've mentioned it many time on, times on the podcast, but uh, I've read quite a few books and, and your period with Lou from 68 to 73 is uh, very interesting and kind of like it's under it's under documented, under reported and, and maybe not always reported correctly. So when I read your book, it, it really opened my eyes because it kind of showed Lou in a different way, very way different light than than you've seen in other books. Uh, and you know, I'm just glad you wrote it because you know, your opinion is as important as anybody and you were with him during that time. So for, you know, for a book to finally come out that documents this from somebody so close to him, you know, I feel is, is important to the whole Lou Reed story, which I think is the Lou Reed story itself is, 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 can be, <laughs> I don't want to say wrong, but there can be a lot of wrong you know, not factual kind of stuff thrown in there. You agree? <laughs> <laughs> I guess yes. I'm saying wrong. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot. Yeah, yeah. Now, you met Lou in 1968. Right. Uh, and you were a student at Columbia at the time, right? Right. Okay. Tell us about the first time you met him, because it's a funny story. Well, um, I was going to Mount Sinai to visit a, a mutual friend of ours, actually, although I didn't know at the time that he was a mutual friend, but Lincoln Suedos was Lou's roommate when he was at Syracuse University. Right. And I knew Lincoln through theater contacts. And so I would visit Lincoln and 
one day I was waiting at the elevator, you know, to go up to the ward to visit Lincoln. And this guy came up and, (laughs) (laughs) and um, he said, Hey, you, and I, I was hoping that he wasn't speaking to me, but I looked in that direction and, and indeed he was. Right. And, um, he said, what are you doing here? You look normal. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely. So lovely. So so I looked at him square in the eye and I said, I am. (laughs) Then the elevator doors opened, you know, a group of people left the elevator and I started walking in and he waited until I passed him. And the son of a gun slapped me on my bottom. Who, who, who does who, something who like does that? that? Yeah. Even back then, that was like, what? what are you doing? Like maybe in the Frank Sinatra days in Las yeah. Vegas, you know, in yeah. the 50s. Yeah. But what? So I was uh, I was not happy about that. <laughs> sure. So I did everything I could to completely ignore him. And he wanted to talk to me. So he was holding the elevator doors open. Oh. And he just kept saying, well, he started telling me who he was and that he was a, who I was visiting. And, and I said, Lincoln Suedos. And he said, Oh, Lincoln was my roommate in at school. You know, yes, I know. Uh, that's why I'm visiting him. And, and, um, and then I just tried to, hopefully the elevator would move soon, but he was holding the doors and they were like now slamming up against him and <laughs> making a noise. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, he, he finally said, you know, well, ask, ask him about me. Okay. Just ask him who I am. And, and I, uh, he was just really obnoxious. So <laughs> finally he let me go and I went up and had some time with Lincoln and told him my experience. And he said, oh, Lou, He's, I said, he was just so incredibly obnoxious. And I told him what he'd done. And he said, oh, you know, he's just trying to impress you. <laughs> what, a, what a way actually, to do it. Yeah, yeah, that actually isn't really going to work. But no. yeah. But anyway, later on, apparently Lou came up after I left or I, I don't remember. It's like over 50 years ago, really. And I think when I saw him coming, I left. <laughs> oh, you took off. I did. I took off. And then Lincoln called me uh, about a week later and said, you know, Lou wants to take you out. And I said, you're kidding. You know, really? <laughs> Probably not. But, you know, Lincoln was persistent. So eventually that meeting was finally set up. And he actually wanted first to know if he could call me. He asked Lincoln right. to ask me if he could call me. So finally, just to stop everyone from bothering me about this, I said, okay, okay, I will, I will, I will. And he called and we started to talk and he actually was really kind of sweet. Right, you saw a different side right there. Yeah, it was sweet, shy. But I was basically on my way. I was leaving for Europe in a couple of weeks by the time he contacted me. And he said, well, can I take you out? And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm leaving uh, the country. <laughs> wow. The next, in a couple of days. And um, he said, well, can I see you before you leave, the night before you leave? And I thought, what? As, as if this would be a person that I would spend the very last night 
in this country before I left it for several months, which is, and I said, no, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so I didn't. Right. Right. <laughs> and then I went to Europe for, and I was gone for five months and I was with my friends from Colombia. We kids used to backpack through Europe at that time. It was yes. safe. And that was a great way to see the country, all the different countries and, and get to learn to know the people and the culture rather than going on, you know, tours and where you don't see actually anything. Of the right. Right. You, at did, all. You get a, yeah. did you get like a U-Rail pass kind of thing and go yeah. around? Yeah. Yeah. My, my, yeah. My brother, my brother did that about 15 years ago. Yeah, it was sort yeah. of like a rite of passage for anybody that was in college at the time. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people did that. And it was 68, so at Columbia, the uh, school had closed down, had shut down because of the uh, the, the riots. War, the war protests and everything, right? The riots. It, was, it, it had, you know, student protests about Vietnam had, had shut, the, um, shut the university down, so we actually got to leave a couple a month earlier so i we had i had another month <laughs> right 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 now you know when you when you met lou um well i guess i should say when when lincoln ex talked to, to to you about him i guess he explained to you who he was he was in the velvet underground a musician and all that and i had actually heard you know his music because i loved rock and roll right and so i knew once i found out who he was i actually had heard you know the velvet underground Music. Some well, of anybody, anybody at that time, sixty-eight in New York City, you at least had some knowledge of who they were, even if you didn't know the music. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And and uh, I mean, I was actually more into Motown, frankly. Really? Brit yeah, I okay. love Motown and and the British Invasion. But right, the Velvet Underground were very good, you know. So we all knew knew them. Right now, I. You know, and that actually got me interested because I knew that he was a very good writer. And since I was an English major, uh, that was interesting to me. That was something you guys had in common that you could talk yeah. about, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, but you came at a time when the Velvets were pretty much going to break up soon, right? Yes. And, you know, did did Lou kind of talk to you about that? Did he did he explain that the band was breaking up or he was thinking of, of leaving? Or what, what did he tell you about the band? Well, when I um, well, an interesting thing was I was in Paris at the time and I, I was traveling with my friends and they were European. So they were working and I would stay home and then meet them up afterwards. And I was sitting in Paris having, a, you know, my roll and a bowl of coffee in a cafe and, and reading the Herald Tribune. And suddenly there was this article about the Velvet Underground and Lou Reed and how he was making all these, bringing all these literary devices into rock and roll music. And that was extremely interesting to me. So when I came home again, he, you know, I, I spoke to Lincoln and Lincoln told him that I was back. So he immediately called and um, I agreed to meet him. Okay. And, so the first time I met him was at this famous bar uptown near Columbia. And we went a restaurant and we went in and I met him there and he was, he was very gallant, you know, when, when he like bowed and kissed my hand and stuff. You know, this is, wow. This is quite total, different from total slapping. Gentle, total yeah. Gentle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, quite different from slapping me on my bottom. I, so I think so. <laughs> I, I think he heard that that was probably not the way to go. Yeah. And um, anyway, he was he drink he he drank, <laughs> and, 
and I didn't. I just had a glass of Chablis at the time, you know, and mm -hmm. I was just having a glass of wine. He was talking, and he, and they were recording. Um, they were recording, I think, their last album. And uh, he kept drinking, and then he started complaining and kvetching about kale, and like nobody ever listens to him, and mm -hmm. and um, so he actually started raving. And I think Kale had been gone by this time. Right, I was you know. mentioning that he yeah. was gone already, so he was yeah. still kind of. And he was still raving about Kale, you know, yeah. because now yeah. Doug Yule was in 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 the band, yeah. and he was complaining about Doug, you know, and he was he he didn't like, you know, he, what had bothered him about John Kale was that he was he just thought it was too artsy fartsy. He wanted to get back to rock and roll. You know, yeah. and, and Kale was a classically trained musician. Right. A lot more avant-garde maybe than, than yeah. Lou wanted yeah. to be. So, yeah. And, and he, Lewis was concerned because he he felt that, you know, they should have gotten a lot bigger than they were, but they just weren't making any money. And he wasn't, they weren't getting any bigger. And he'd been trying to make a go with this band for years and so he'd kick Kale out. Yeah. And Doug came on and they were now recording what was the first loaded. album? Yeah, loaded. it was loaded. Yeah. And that was when Sweet Jane was on. And when right. I heard Sweet Jane, it was like, oh my God, this guy can, it's, it was just wonderful. But, you know, during the day, he was drinking a lot. Right. right. <laughs> he was raving and, and so then all of the people were, you know, were, were looking at us and he was creating a scene, which I never really particularly enjoyed. So mm -hmm. I got him out of there. Yeah. He could barely walk, but he insisted upon walking me home, which was about <laughs> 10 blocks. And so I steered him in the right direction and, and we got going and we got to my house, you know, it goes on 116th Street in Riverside Drive. We walked down the hill. Right. Yeah. And he got to the front door and he looked at me and uh, I just said, no, I don't bring boys up to the room. You know, right. it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. So he said, okay. And he started walking back up the, he kissed me on my forehead actually, and then <laughs> walked away and, and I could see, I didn't know how he was going to make it, you know, cause he was falling down drunk. Yeah. He was that wrecked. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. I was afraid, you know, I called after him. And I said, hey, you know, I'm out of cigarettes. Why don't I just walk up with you? Because there was a cigarette stand on 116th Street at the uh, subway. Right. And I figured that way I could escort him up the hill. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's what happened. And, um, and he's actually was very funny. <laughs> he's a very funny guy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very charming. But he was sometimes difficult to understand. Sure. But at any rate, you know, I got him to the top of the staircase and he held on to the rail and went down and into the bowels of the uh subway and he was gone but he called about the next day yeah actually yeah yeah now fast forward a little bit uh you guys your relationship uh got more serious uh the velvet underground ended well lou left i should say because the velvet underground actually did go on a little bit longer but but Lou left the band and um well he actually called me you know uh 
to come and see him at Max's yeah. for the last, he said it was going to be their last show. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, well, we're, we're breaking up, but I don't want you to tell anybody. So I actually was there. I did come down and uh, it was a wonderful show. Wow. And then he did indeed leave that night and went off to the Long Island to live with his parents. Right, right. And and this this period of, of Lou, even though it's a kind of a short period, but it's it's kind of important because it's a lost period where not much is really talked about. Um, there was a point in that period, really, I guess about a six or eight month period where where, you know, he really was thinking of giving up music altogether and becoming uh you know, getting into a literary career, writing poetry and, and stories and things like that. And you were right in the middle of that. Um, you know, what's your opinion of this period? Well, he was a really, really sweet man. Right. And I was quite enamored by him once I got to know him. And it ended up that, you know, every weekend we either spent it in, at my apartment in New York, in the city, near Columbia, or the next weekend, I would go out and spend the weekend at his house with his parents. And so that was pretty much our major courting period. Um, and it was really great because it was very quiet. He, he, he wasn't crazy. He wasn't drinking nearly as much as he was before. He was seeing a therapist and he was writing. He was, you know, because he, he always had, he wanted to be a poet. Actually, it was, that was, was he going to stay in rock and roll and write that way? Or could he actually make it in, in, as, a, as a poet? So he began writing and he would share his work with me. And he was sending it out and he was getting published. And he actually got published in the Harvard Advocate. Um, he was wonderful. He was a really wonderful writer. Right. And that's, I was hoping... That's where his career would go. That's where you felt his strengths lied more than playing music, really just with literary. Well, he was an English major himself, yeah, you know, yeah. at Syracuse. And yes, he was just wonderful. And I was, you know, and it's a, a much quieter life <laughs> right. as a poet than certainly rock and roll. And there's not all those horrible drugs. And well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to, to, kind of think about what his career could have been had he gone that direction or even a little more seriously in that direction he could have had both yeah you know? kind of did in a way yeah 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 well he did from people that understood him um and i'm just gonna say from from my experience as a fan uh it was always about the lyrics it was yep. always it was always the words the, the the way he put the words together the you know i'm not an english lit major but i understood that there was some kind of something different in the way that he wrote compared to the way other people were writing. He, you know, he brought up a, a certain level of, you know, street stories and things like that to music, but it wasn't just the topics. It was the way he put the, the words together that I, you know, was always blown away by. So, I mean, he, he really did have both in a sense, you know, um, this all kind of peaks this period around March 10th of, of 1971, 
at the poetry reading that was at St. Mark's Church on 2nd Avenue in the East Village. Uh, this is where they do readings, I think, about once a year or maybe maybe more than that then. I'm not sure. Uh, but there was a poetry reading. Now, you attended this, right? Yep. Okay. And um, how did it go? Well, he was very nervous. We we, we met uh, and uh, before the reading, and he, he, you know, he, he I said, you know, because by now I I had left Columbia and had transferred to the neighborhood playhouse school, the theater. Lincoln had actually uh, helped me, said that I should go to theater, and helped me uh, coached and directed my audition, and I uh, I had been accepted at the playhouse with Sanford Meisner. So I now was in theater training, which was really intense. But I said to him, you know, do you want to go over the poems? You know, we could just practice. You could just say them to me. So we did that for a while. And and he was great. So then we got in the subway and went down to St. Mark's Place. And we walked in and there were all these literary figures there. You know, Jim Carroll, who was a sweetheart. And I guess. Patty Smith and Ellen Ginsberg was there and some Warhol people were there too, right? To show yeah. what I guess, right? Yeah. And um, they were all very pleased to see him because he was returning, you know, there, you know, cause everybody loved Lou. And I think a lot of what they loved about him is that he represented the wild part of them that they never actually expressed. So he pretty much expressed Everybody else's craziness. He embodied it in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So, but here he was um, being presented, you know, as a poet, not a crazy person, <laughs> you know, not a, a, a drug person or a drunk person or in, in that kind of milieu. He was just, he was up there reading his, the work that he had been writing. And I don't, know what that what happened but the audience really wasn't all that terribly receptive right and it wasn't until uh the poem that he wrote was called andy's chest and that was about andy warhol when he was shot by that insane person right and um that was the only poem where he you know got any kind of applause or reaction and i could see how hurt he was you know it his voice was, he was a little uncertain. Yeah. But he um, he actually started becoming defiant because nobody was really responding. And that's pretty much what Lou's like. Right. And uh, so he finished off and came back and sat down. And, and well, it was very different when we left. A lot of people were not crowding around him anymore. And, you know, he left on our own. Okay. Okay. You know, and just so people have a little context, the, the, the poem that, that uh, Betty is talking about is Andy's Chest. Uh, originally, it was called Andy Warhol's Chest, but Andy's Chest is the song that ends up on Transformer. And uh, basically, it was almost the same lyrics, a little some minor changes in there, but it's about Andy being shot, like you said, when he was, he was shot by uh, Valerie Sol- Solanus, is her yeah. name, I think? Yeah. Yeah, and um, he would show people the scars on him and you know Lou was very you know Andy was was somebody that he loved and had so much respect for and and really well not actually at that point he was really yeah. he was furious with with Warhol actually 
you know, okay. I did my very best to keep them apart. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> because he didn't think that, uh, you know, Andy didn't really do anything or throw any money or do any, he wasn't really yeah. producing them. He, so he didn't, he, you know, basically Warhol's position was you have my name. I, you know, I introduce you to the world. You're my band. And that's basically what I do. Sure. And he didn't, throw any money at him and he didn't do any PR. He wasn't setting up any tours and Lewis pretty much blamed him for why they weren't uh, as successful as he believed they should be. So yeah. at that point he was really very hostile to Andy. To Andy. Right. The reason I said what I said about him respecting him is, is oh, when, no. when yeah. you, when you, uh, I was able to hear like the introduction to this, the New York public library has all this stuff. And I saw something online and there was a, a recording of that night or that day, uh, March 10th. And the intro to Andy's chest, he, he just says how, you know, he, he cared about him and everything like that. So that's why I say that. But I'm sure there was a lot of mixed feelings. I mean, I've seen interviews with Lou where, you know, he very would kind of as a wise ass say, you know, uh, people thought Andy Warhol was in the band or people thought Andy Warhol produced the record. You know, he really didn't do anything like you said he lent his name to it well he was he was aware uh, of the power of, of warhol's name so he always you know had some accolades and he was very positive and you know in public about andy warhol and always credited him for it because you know he could basically stay on his coattails right right okay so we're going to take a short commercial break right here um, we're going to come back in a minute and we're going to talk more about Lou. Uh, we've got Betty Kronstadt here, Lou Reed's first uh, wife. And we'll be back in one minute. Welcome back to Rocker Mike and Rob Presents to talk more about Lou Reed with his first wife, Betty Kronstadt. Uh, Betty wrote a fantastic book called Perfect Day, an intimate portrait of life with Lou Reed. It came out in 2016 on Jawbone Press, and you can get it anywhere that's selling books like Amazon. It actually was published the day that Donald Trump <laughs> won the election. Oh. Wow. Okay. November 8th. Yeah. Wow. So there wasn't a whole lot of publicity at that point. You know, Donald no, the, world, the, the world was totally turned upside down at that point. Yeah. Trump was, he just vacuumed everything, you know, 
Yeah. Just sucked all the attention out of everything. Yep, yep. So we were talking about Lou Reed's period of time here where he was thinking about becoming a poet. And uh, he had done a poetry reading on March 10th of 71 that didn't quite go the way he wanted. So basically, he decided to go back to music. Um, Betty, you, you, what was... What was he thinking? You know, was he thinking I can't be a poet or a writer? I have to play music for people to understand me. What was he thinking? Well, a lot of this I go into in the book, you know, and it's also, you know, and I can go into it a little bit more in depth in in the uh, screenplay that we just finished uh, writing. I have a partner that helped me. And what was the question again? Well, I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just asking. Sorry. Oh, like, no, I remember. Right. So it was about two weeks after and I was back out at his, at, at, you know, out with him and his family. And he turned to me and he, he said, you know, I, I've made a decision and I, and about what, you know, and he just looked at me and said, they're never going to let me do it. Yeah. And I do what? They're never going to let me play rock and roll. I, or they're never going to let me be a poet. I, I, the only way I'm going to be able to write is rock and roll. And I said, well, okay, you know, and of course I was very disappointed, but it was basically as a result of the response that he had gotten at uh, St. Mark's that completely convinced him that he was never going to be able to make it as a poet. And if he was ever going to get out of his parents' house, you know, because he was actually 30 at this point. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, I can't have my parents supporting me. You know, at the, I have to make my own life. So this is the way I can write. So I'm just going to continue doing that way. And he and can he have had, some kind of income, obviously. Yeah. And he had actually, you know, he did get some royalties back. He had spent that time um Re- registering all of the uh, Velvet Underground uh, music to him, you know, so copyright. he got, he got, yeah, he got all those copyrights. So he, there were some royalties and, and we started talking about him getting back in as a, um, as, a as a solo, you know, right. artist, as a, you know, an artist on his own. So inroads had began uh, and uh, there was a manager, a couple of managers that were interested. There was a producer that was interested in him. So he started to uh, give interviews and set up meetings. And then RCA kind of got involved and then Dennis Katz. Right. So, so it, it, the, and then tours, we had to get a band. So they got like a high school band. That's all they could afford. Uh, on, on tour. The- is that yeah. the Lou Reed and the Tots? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was, they were basically a high school band. They were young guys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a release, uh, just in case anybody's interested, Yeah. called uh, American Poet Live. Have you ever heard this? You probably have, right? I'm not sure what, it's, okay. what you're talking about. But... It's, it's, it's actually Lou Reed and the Tots Live um, in Hempstead, Long Island. I think <laughs> there was like a Hempstead Arena or somewhere like that that, that had you know, he played at and it's a very good quality recording. I think it might've been on the radio originally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like a two CD set that I got uh, a friend of mine got it for me for Christmas, like a few years back. And it's, it's excellent. It's excellent quality. And the, 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 the interesting thing at that point with the tots is these guys, you know, they seem like they could play. 
I don't know. What, what did Lou think of them? Well, you know, I was with Lou, uh, Dennis Katz, his brother, Steve Katz, from, mm -hmm. you know, Blood, Sweat and Tears, uh, got together this band. He knew them. And there was a rehearsal studio in Dobbs Ferry. So we went out to Dobbs Ferry. It was about three or four weekends. Uh, and he just rehearsed. He, he basically taught them all of the music that he had that eventually ended up on the Lou Reed first album. Right. Right. Now, that album was put out in early 72 by RCA mm -hmm. and produced by Richard Robinson. Mm -hmm. um, what do you remember about the making of this album? I mean, it was his first solo effort. What, what was happening? So um, I, I knew Richard and Lisa well. Uh, Lisa used to have these soirees where then they would all come over to Lisa's house and Richard Lisa would Robinson. Play, yeah, yeah. And Richard would pay, play the music and and Lou would sit around on the floor and there'd be a circle around him and he'd just talk and everybody would just be, you know, open mouth gaping uh, and listening to everything that he had to say. But it was a networking possibility you know, that that's what was going on. At any rate, Richard finally did get the job and they decided to go out to a London. It was Trident Studios in London. And I was in I was at the Playhouse when I wasn't in school from nine to five. I was rehearsing. Or, or auditioning. So he wanted me to go. He was begging me to go because he depended upon me in terms of, um, you know, support, emotional support. He was that very dependent. And I, no, I can't do it. I can't get out. You know, I couldn't leave for that long. Yeah. So he went to London uh, with Richard. They recorded it. And I, he, I liked the album very much. And Lou was very proud of that album. You know, it was a, a unfettered, you know, uh, very straightforward interpretation of a couple of new songs, uh, as well as some from the Velvet Underground period. Right. Now he, he reworked a few Velvet Underground songs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I as a fan, I, I love this album. OK. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that it kind of gets a little overlooked because the next album that comes out is Trent. <laughs> OK. And that's right. that eclipsed pretty much everything he did at, you know, at that point. Um, Transformers. Uh, Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I was there. So when Transformers recorded, we went back to London, and I came along with him. Then that was right. a great period in his life. That was a wonderful time. Well, you know, David Bowie is the producer. Everybody knows. Yeah. That. And Mick yeah. Ronson uh, of of Bowie's band, the great guitarist, was involved. He did a lot of arrange arranging, arranging, yeah, string arranging, arranging, and all that stuff. Um, Sweet guy, really talented, amazing. Yeah, 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 big big loss that he. Yeah. Uh, now, what did you know? What was the consensus about bringing Bowie on board? Like, you know, Bowie had just really was was coming out. Ziggy Stardust was was out, I think, at that point, or about to come out. And uh, he was kind of ri of a, a rising star, I should say. Um, did you think that Bowie was going to be good for his career, Betty? Well, um, I think everybody did. And I know that he was very excited. Uh, it, you know, he basically said to me, if, I, if, if, if we could work on the same label, you know, because RCA was somewhat courting him. And they were also courting uh, David. So if, if, and so he flew into New York. And we had a couple of meetings. We got together, him and Angie, and mm -hmm. and basically they wanted to work together. And I think that's pretty much what happened. And so Lou was signed, 
and um, Bo got signed on as the producer with, um, and that's how it was recorded. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, when this album was completed, obviously there was going to be a, a a tour after that. Yeah. And, um, you make a, a you know a great point in your book about how kind of in those days women were pretty much you know seen but not heard i should say okay you know kind of like just in the background uh not expected to do that much but you wanted to be involved with uh with his tour right i i went on the first tour with lou uh Mm -hmm. and the tots and i was just babysitting and i'm not interested in that at all and it's a very tough life you know and it was a lot of a lot of uh, shows on the tours. I didn't want to go back. And he said, I can't do it without you. You know, you have to, and he, he, he was that kind of a personality. He, he did become very dependent upon the woman that he was involved with. It happened with his, you know, with Sylvia. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why um, Laurie, you know, kept her own apartment and, mm-hmm. and she realized, you know, that you're going to get sucked in to lose, you know, and, you know, so uh, it kept her distance because he, 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 he would glom onto you and he really, you, you suck everything out of your life. So he, I said, I don't want to go. Into, you're sucked into the Lou Reed orbit. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to go, and, yeah. you know, unless I have a job. And I'd finished with the uh, training at, at, at the Playhouse. So I, he said, but you're free now. And I said, but I'm not, I don't, I'm not going if I don't have a job. And he said, well, what do you want to do? Tell me what you want to do. I said, well, the only thing that I think I would be interested in is lights, you know, because I'm a, you know, I'm a theater person and lighting is really challenging and very important. And I could learn from that. And he said, right. so do you want to direct my lights and design them? And I said, how can I, I don't know anything about lights, you know. I said, well, I have a lighting company. I'll have them teach you. <laughs> really? Okay. Well, yeah. all right, maybe. And that's what happened. And so I, they did, they were very generous and taught me the basic rudiments of, you know, how to, you know, creating a lighting plot. And so then I, the next tour I was on, you know, I was up in the, you know, I was there in the lighting booth, calling the lights, operating the lighting board, and then calling the lights for the uh, spot operators. And right. it was, it, it worked because I knew all of his songs. I knew the lyrics to all of his music. So I, I could, I could design Right. And, and lighting is so important uh, just, you know, for everybody listening, you know, when you when you when you're doing a tour, a show has to certain songs require certain kinds of lighting. And Lou at that time was wearing uh, he was wearing a lot of makeup. Right. He was wearing the white face the white was face. Uh, and, and you, you could probably credit that to, uh, you know, the glam rock. And that would yeah. be Bowie. And yeah. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so you know how to, she, you know how to yeah. light you know how to light him in a way that would accentuate the way he looked and all that, right? Well, because I knew his songs, I knew his lyrics. Um, I have a basic English background, but I also have a theater background, so I kind of it it worked, and he was very cooperative with me, and it was actually a really nice part of our relationship. It just it wasn't until I wrote the book that I realized, oh my God, you know no women were doing this. I then remembered that it was just me and a bunch of big old, you know, union guys. You go from one house to the next, these big old, you know, union guys. 
they look at you like, oh, who are you again? And what do you are want you- me to do? <laughs> yeah. But wow. it worked out. It, it was all right. And it well, was a really interesting than, experience. Right? Yeah. It's better than babysitting, I guess. Yeah, much. Yeah. Now, you know, at this point, uh, Transformer big hit. And uh, there's a song on Transformer called Perfect Day. It's one of the definite standout songs on the album. Uh, it's a ballad. And uh, it's written about a picnic in the park, Central Park. And you would know something about that because it's really written about you, right? Yeah, that was the day that we, um, it was the day that we spent uh, at Central Park. I'm sorry, the phone keeps ringing. I don't know what to have. Anyway, so, and he wanted to meet because we, he was feeling very successful uh, and he wanted, we'd been working on the road constantly, you know, we come like home, we come home maybe one weekend every three or four weeks and then we're back on the road again. It was really quite, uh, quite uh, an extensive tour. So this was pretty much like a little bit of a break. Uh, Let's meet in the park and, you know, and I, you know, and so we did and champagne and at that wonderful restaurant in the park, in the park. And, um, and and then he brought up the whole marrying thing again. And, you know, I was not at all interested in getting married. <laughs> yeah, the book, uh, and I'm, I'm sure in your screenplay that you've got, you, you go into this in a lot more detail. But um, th- there's points in the book where you where you mention how you're hesitant. OK, you weren't really into getting married. Um, but then there's a point. I guess around the end of 72 or so where you, where you agree to this. And I'm just wondering what, what was the change of heart? What, what made you realize you wanted to take that, that plunge? Well, you know, he had started, you know, when you're on tour, there's a lot of cocaine (laughs) and, (laughs) and actually cocaine is almost uh, medicinal, you know, because it keeps you awake <laughs> and the way the tour was booked, it was so extensive that, you know, you just went from the hotel to sound check and then the show, and then you came back and then you got on the plane the next day and went to another, and it, it was constant like that. So it was almost medicinal, but you know, you take enough of a medicinal <laughs> dose of cocaine and, you begin, he needed it. And, and the combination of alcohol and cocaine and the fact that he couldn't write, he got into a situation where he had writer's block after Transformer came out. He was like nine months and RCA was waiting for his next album and he couldn't freaking produce it. So he was freaking out, which meant that he was taking more drugs and he was drinking more, you know, and we were going to Max's Kansas City. It was insane, insane, but it was interesting uh, scene, certainly. But, the, and of course, this is a comparison between the rock and roll life and couldn't you just please be a quiet poet, but it didn't work out that way. So right. anyway. Right. Now, so the drinking you know, and the, uh, and you asked about, 
Mm-hmm. I, I come from a family that are Norwegian and they don't get married till they're like 30. My grandmother was 30 when she got married. You know, uh, Norwegians wait till the very last minute, go out and just have all your wild time and then <laughs> settle down for the rest of your life. And that's how I was brought up. So I wasn't, I was 23 or 22, you know, I, I, no. But at this point, it looked like the only way maybe that I could uh, put some kind of stopper on this to have some control over the kind of behavior that was happening and maybe make him feel a little bit more uh, supported and, and, and he wanted, he wanted this to happen. So I finally consented and that's pretty much what happened uh, uh, at that day in the park. You know, we had lunch and then we had a fight, which is not in the song. And then we met up again (laughs) and we saw some, you know, we, we went on, went and saw some animals in the park and went and saw a French movie afterwards. And we talked about, you know, when, when I would, you know, you know, when we would get engaged and get married and it happened soon after that. Is the, is the sangria part true? Yeah, it is. Did I say champagne? I meant sangria. Sorry. You're right. Absolutely. Exactly. What happened is what happened in the song. That's what happened. Wow. Now, you know, you mentioned about lose rider block. Okay. Rider's block. And, and that would, be you know it's it, it's typical for for people to have trouble to write an album after a very big hit album there's a lot of pressure um but you were more kinda, involved in that yeah yeah you well yeah and 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 you were kind of surprised i believe i would say when you finally heard what he was gonna make as the theme and the topics of this new album which would be called berlin it was concept album uh and produced by bob ezrin and you know lou used to pretty much sing things to you acoustically like play acoustic guitar and sing to you the songs all the time yeah when he wrote songs uh yeah yeah so and sometimes i would sing them too oh okay okay um what happened when you first heard some of these tracks that would be on berlin well i you know i got up and it was like early in the morning and, you know, we were, we were living together in our apartment on the Upper East Side and he wasn't in the bed next to me. So I got up and he was out there in the living room and it was about nine o'clock in the morning and three quarters of a bottle of scotch is gone. It's propped up, you know, uh, on his knee. He's dead out sleeping in his, you know, writing chair and the, the bot he's holding the bottle <laughs> and I, I it, it was way too early for this you know so I I, I woke him up and he, he was just so happy because he said I wrote the album what I wrote the album it's done I, I have it I I, I have it I oh, want to play it, over, I need to play it for you yeah overnight? he did actually wow I, well there's you know pretty much there's some songs that he had been working on fragments of there's a couple of songs that he had been working on earlier but he put together and made them fit into it but yeah he basically wrote it overnight and that's how lou wrote on top of it all that's pretty much that was his and then he never he didn't really change it all that much right right did you you want to play it for me right and and you know what were you some of the topics i had no idea what this right. album was about. All, right. all we were living with was the constant pressure that um, he couldn't, you know, produce anything. It was basically because I think 
uh, he became famous uh, over music that really didn't represent him at all. And that's what Walk on the Wild Side suddenly made him a star. And Walk on the Wild Side is not anywhere near the kind of music that Lou you know, typically wrote or you know played. It was really a Bowie. You know, that was a Bowie thing. And and he 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 kind of struggled with that, right? He felt it wasn't. Uh... It wasn't representing him. Right, right. And that and yet that's what gave him his fame. And I believe that a great deal of the. Uh, the root of the writing problem was that, like, how do I, now what do I write? What do I write now? But he finally did get this story. And I, so I didn't know anything about what this album was until he said, I, I want to play it for you, which is what he always did. Right. And he sat me down and he started to play it. And After I got that? some coffee. Yeah. And what did you think when you heard it? Cause it, it touched on some very personal things, right? Well, I do go into that in the book as well. And there's a, a, a terrific scene in the movie about this. I've had a couple of people read it. And they're professionals. And, you know, it's, it, um, it, it basically is. But it, I had a, a particularly um, my childhood. Uh, you know, my father and mother uh, met after World War II. My dad was in World War II, you know, invasion in Normandy. And uh, then that really bloody war that happened afterwards, he was shot and wow. and he was hospitalized and got several bronze stars. And and he was in a hospital in Fort Benning when he met my mother, who just happened to be there and went with her uncle. And they wow. were introduced at a dance. They both had dad had a musical background. He could play any instrument by ear just by picking it up. It was ridiculous. And my mother was in, in, into music. And so they fell in love and had a great marriage. But dad had uh, PTSD. He would lose it because he had electric shock treatments, which is wow. what they gave World War II soldiers. That's when they began. And, of course, one of the things that tied Lou and me really together was that he had had electric shock yes. treatments. And I had grown up with a man who had. So I knew what electric shock treatments do to people. And I believe that's really what, what got him to really trust in me uh, because we did share that background. Uh, yeah. So I had finally told Lou a little bit about the, uh, what, what had happened. I was kidnapped. My father kidnapped me from my mother. You know, my mother left my father, you know, and I was very young and, because of his treatment of her, he adored and loved her. But uh, sometimes with these electric shock treatments, they, it shatters their nerves. They can't, they can't take anything. Lou drank. My, right. There was no alcohol in my family. But that was one of the reasons why Lou was drinking. It just calmed him down a little bit. Well, it affects your short-term memory. It, it affects a great deal of memory, yeah. But at any rate, so... And my father, my grandmother had my, you go down and get my, my daughter because my mother had taken me back down to the south where she was from. So dad came down, kidnapped me from my mother, brought me back up. I told that story to Lou finally. It was a very painful story because I adored my mother and I missed her very much. And um, I told him that story uh, because she lost me. In the, she came up and fought for me and lost me. Yeah. And uh, my parents, uh, my grandparent, my grandfather and that family 
were relatively wealthy and could afford a good lawyer. She couldn't afford anything. High school kid from, you know, uh, New, New Orleans. She's from Louisiana. Oh. And she had no money. So she lost custody of me. Yeah. And there was a lot of stories that they told about her that weren't true. And she was accused of, of, of being, a, you know, sleeping around and stuff and taking drugs and drinking, none of which she was doing. But that's what she was accused of in order to uh, lose me. And she did. So I lost my mother and she was accused of all these things. And this Berlin is about a woman who uh, is I think she's a torch song singer, uh, torch song Right. Artist sings in bars and drinks and sleeps around with everybody is a, a whore and and she has a child and she loses her daughter. Yeah, they did. There's the lyric. Uh, they're taking her children away because they say she's not a good mother. I believe that's. And yeah. When I heard that, it was. Oh, my God, this is my story. And he's putting it on an album for the entire world to hear that my mother was called a whore and all this stuff and lost me and none of it was true and now it's on an album in the entire how could he do that how could he use this incredibly mm -hmm. painful incident in my childhood and i he played it for me and i said how could you do this and he said I have to write a song. If I don't get a song out, an album out in three weeks, I'm losing the contract, baby. I got a, I got a story. And it's just a story. Yeah. No one will know it's you. No one will know that it's about your mother. If you, if you just keep your mouth shut, you know, nobody will know. Yeah. I, and I said, yeah, but I will know. I know. Did you feel betrayed? Uh-huh, I did. And was that? And I think that's when he lost me. Yeah, I was going to say, was that when you pretty much, you know, ended it more or less? Emotionally, but I yeah. stuck around. I stayed because Dennis said, you know, well, we're not. He's not going to be able to do this without you. You know, you, you know, and I, he couldn't. And now he had material for the album. So, and they were setting up the recording date. So I said, okay, well, I'll just, I'll say through the recording of Berlin. And that is pretty much what I did. I went to the studio a couple of times in London once again, but um, Lou spent a lot of time with Bob Ezrin and there was a whole lot more than just drinking going on. Yeah. It was a, a beautiful studio album, but I was pretty much at home, you know, uh, it, it, hanging around a studio isn't all that much fun if you're not working anyway. And I think, I wasn't interested in being there because I didn't want to hear these songs over and over and over again. It was incredibly painful. So I would go in museums and shopping and seeing things in London and meeting friends for lunch and stuff, you know, Angie, you know, while, and then I'd be home when he came carried in the door at four o'clock in the morning and I would just hold him and then, he'd be okay to go out and the next day and go back to recording. And that's how it went. Right. Right. Now with the Berlin album completed, he had to go back out on tour again. Yeah. And, uh, it, it for him. Right. I mean, it, it didn't go exactly as well as planned. The critics kind of were, were a little down they on it. They hated it. They yeah. hated it. It they almost destroyed. More, 
Yeah, they it were. almost destroyed his career. Yeah, yeah. And he would stay away from these songs for many, many, many years. 30, okay. 35 years, yeah. Yeah, and, and only really revisit them in the last few years of his, of his life. Um, and yeah. in that time, uh, the album became, you know, the opinion of it changed. And it became, people got it, I guess, finally, or whatever. 30 and, years uh, later, yeah. 30 years later. I mean, I, I the first time I ever heard it, I said, this is one of the darkest, most depressing things I've ever heard. And it is still dark and, and depressing in a sense. But but it really has, you know, in the, in the, in the public consciousness, it has become, uh, you know, a much more classic rock and roll, rock record, 70s rock concept record. And, uh, well, there, there is a you know there is a couple uh, that are falling apart. They're they're falling apart, and <laughs> my marriage was falling apart yeah. because Lewis was taking so much drugs and alcohol, and oh my god, um, and and so not everything on the album, of course, was was true. It was an enormous amount of exaggeration. But some of it was, and you know, so now not only my mother and what wasn't true, but and there's my marriage for the entire world to hear some of it as it falls apart. So that was fun. <laughs> wow, wow! Can you tell us about the last time you saw him? Well, I was in the uh, on tour with him. Uh, I stayed for the European. We, we, I think it was Amsterdam and Germany, and um, London. And the last time was in Paris. And we were at the Hotel Bristol. It's a really beautiful, old, gorgeous, you know, hotel. And, and you know, it was just, there was just so many drugs. And it wasn't just cocaine anymore, right? Well, I had, by now I had divorced him. Right. But he convinced me to come back to him because I had always said, if I ever see a needle around you, I am out of here. And I caught him one night uh, at a party with a, a supposed friend of ours who was shooting him up. And that's when I asked for a divorce and I flew to Santo Domingo, 24 hour divorce. But within two weeks, he came and said, no, I, I won't do it anymore. I'll stop it. So he got me back that way. Right. And um, so we were in London now and and then Paris and he didn't stop. Uh, I didn't. I didn't see the the. I didn't see the needles, but you know I'm not an idiot. Yeah. But but there was a lot of snorting of cocaine going on, and he ran out of coke before the show for Paris, and um. So he said, you know, if you hadn't had any, you know, then there'd at least be some for me. And I, I, I haven't, I've been awake for like three days and three nights. How, how do you think I stay awake? Yeah. <laughs> you know, in, on tour and with you and taking care of all, uh, you. And, and I, you know, he just said that, I don't know, he called me something pretty awful. Yeah. And then he shoved me. Okay. So he was. This was the second time that he had, um, been physical with me the mm -hmm. first time he gave me a black eye and yeah. on a tour and i gave him one back but so now and he said he never did it again that was it but now here we are and he shoved me and and that's not going to happen nobody's going to do that to me 
So there was a glass of milk on a table <laughs> in front of us. And I just, I, don't, I put, picked it up and threw it at him. Wow. In his face. And I said, here, have something healthy to drink, please. <laughs> oh, God. For wow. once. And left. And that was the very last time you saw him, right? Yeah. Wow. Wow. I mean, he had his, he had his doctor call me about two months after I left him. And, you know, so his doctor called me, the one that was giving him the uh, wonderful shots. Mm-hmm. And, he, you know, Lou needs you. He wants you back. He can't live without you. If Lou wants me, Lou's going to have to call me himself. Yeah. It was pretty much the same thing with Lincoln, you know. Right, 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 right. Well, Betty, you know, you wrote this book and it was published in 2016. And now you've you've got a screenplay that you've completed. Right. Yep. And uh, you're trying to shop this. So anybody listening, um, what's the best way to, to, to contact you regarding the screenplay or anything? Uh, you can uh, uh, contact my publisher. He's in London, Jawbone, uh, Jawbone Press. OK. Uh, is there an email address or anything you want to give out? Yeah, it's it's jawbone it's jawbone press you know dot com. It's an independent publisher uh, in London. He's wonderful. Okay, okay. So Betty, I'd like to really thank you for for, for coming on. And this is a was a fantastic, amazing story. Uh, very heartfelt, and I know it was difficult. I'm sure for you to revisit all this, but uh, it's a story that you know you got down in a book, and now that you got a screenplay. Let's, let's hope and pray this could be made into something because it really tells the story and, and puts a different light onto Lou Reed in a way that people may not realize he was even like that. Well, the screenplay is pretty much, um, it, it's really basically now it's a love story about a couple mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and how it's, it's a beautiful love story that starts to fall apart and the only difference here is that the guy in the love story is Lou Reed. It is yeah. a love story. Absolutely. It absolutely, it was, the book is, and so is the movie. So wow. that's how the movie goes into a little bit more now of, of the relationship itself. And mm-hmm. it's coming from the woman's point of view, pretty much. Sure. Sure. I think it's fascinating and I, I, I wish you all the best. I hope that it gets picked up. And uh, again, if people want to read the book, it's called Perfect Day, An Intimate Portrait of Life with Lou Reed by Betty Kronstadt. Thank you, Betty, very much. And when this show is ready to come up, I'll be in touch with you and you'll get all the links and you can share it around just like we're going to do that. Okay. thank you, Mike. I hope so, too. And I'll be in touch with you. All right. Okay. thanks. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Mike. Anytime. Have a good one. You too. Bye bye. Bye. Hey.